Well, in the corner of my office, I have a a small, kind of humble homage to my childhood. There sits an antique metal ship that my dear mother gifted me many years ago on top of one of my favorite childhood series, The Chronicles of Narnia, which sits on top of a small, treasured collection of nautical books. From oceanography to ships to sailing to coastal trips, I love the ocean. I love all things nautical. But my hands down, favorite nautical subject, hands down, it's lighthouses. Lighthouses. The first lighthouse was built in 270 B.C. in Alexandria, Egypt, under the reign of Alexander the Great. And lighthouses have been built worldwide ever since. Have you ever gone inside of a lighthouse? You stood near one? Pretty incredible. Pretty incredible. Well, there are many purposes for the lighthouse, many. But the the central, the greatest purpose is twofold. First, sailors need light. Sailors need light. Whether on a calm or stormy dark night, sailors need light to navigate into safe harbor. Ships rely on light in the darkness. Second, they exist because if ship does not have light, then it will wander off course. It will wander off onto the rocks or a sandbar or a reef. Well, last Sunday, we embarked on a series through 1 Timothy. And at the end of the first chapter, Paul gives two examples, two individuals that made shipwreck of their faith, that wandered off course away from the light of Christ and the gospel and ran aground, making shipwreck of themselves in an unsound gospel, an unsound doctrine that brings and brought them spiritual death. So how do we as a church, specifically in our corporate worship, and when I, when I say corporate worship, I mean our public, collective, combined worship together in a service like this. How do we as a church not wander away and do the same? Well, please turn with me in your Bible to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy. It's in the New Testament. There's no shame in using your table of contents. We're going to be dwelling in chapter 2 today. If you don't have a Bible, you could find one at a receipt near you. You could find Paul's first letter to Timothy on page 932 in that chair Bible. When you're there, say amen. If you're not there, say hold on. Okay. Please follow along as I read 1 Timothy chapter 2. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, 
who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place that men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This is God's word to the church this morning. Thanks be to God. Let's say that together. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would bless your word this morning. We ask that you would feed us from it. That you would teach us from it. Give us soft and humble hearts to receive it. And may we come to better know and see Jesus this morning. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, 1 Timothy is a manual of light and of life for flourishing pastors and flourishing churches. And before we sail into and through chapter 2, let's first catch up on chapter 1. In the first section of the letter we looked at last week, Uh, Paul made and proclaimed the point that a flourishing church, first and foremost, protects the message of the gospel. All sound local church ministry flows out of a sound understanding of the gospel. It was true then, and it's true now. Paul made this point clear as he wrote to Pastor Timothy, an entrusted man with an entrusted mission to confront counterfeit gospels and false teaching in the church and to ultimately protect the entrusted message summed up in chapter 1, verse 15, that Christ Jesus died to save sinners. Upon this truth, Paul continues to give us the map and the compass for a thriving life together. And here in chapter 2, we see that A flourishing church prioritizes prayer, the payment, and purposeful roles in corporate worship. A flourishing church prioritizes prayer, the payment, and purposeful roles in corporate worship. First, we're going to look at the priority of prayer in verses 1 through 4. Then we're going to look at the priority of the payment in verses 5 through 7. And then we're going to look at the priority of purposeful roles 
in verses 8 through 15. So point one, the priority of prayer, verses 1 through 4. Let me read those once again. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. Well, in the previous chapter, Paul went all in on that gospel message. He led us into the deep waters of the gospel as he gave a personal testimony of the gospel, a precise summary of that gospel, a praise to the Christ who is the center of that gospel, and then a plea for the sake of the gospel. And now in chapter 2, verse 1, Paul writes to Timothy in the church, then and now, first of all, I urge you or I charge you, just as he did, Timothy in the church to confront counterfeit gospels in the church, he charges them to pray together. Prayer isn't just a personal habit of grace. It is a public habit of grace. Prayer is where our humble dependency and God's mercy meet. And here we receive two key encouragements for a God-dependent and thriving corporate prayer life together. We are given first the shape of our prayers together, and second, the scope of our prayers together here in these first four verses. We are given here a four-dimensional view of a healthy prayer life. We are to pray, verse 1 in general, prayers to God for all things. We are to pray prayers of supplication, Supplication being appeals to God. We are to pray prayers of intercession. Those are mediating prayers on behalf of other souls. And we are to pray prayers of thanksgiving. Prayers of gratefulness to God from a grateful heart with a grateful flow. Our prayers are to have a multidimensional and diverse shape. A helpful acronym to help kind of guide us in this sort of praying is ACTS. Adoration of God, confession to God, thanksgiving for God, and supplication to God. Acts. The Psalms also give evidence of this sort of multidimensional prayer. They're a picture of this. If you don't know the words to pray privately or publicly, then open a psalm and just pray those words back to God. Speak to him from from your heart, whether in private or in public. Church, we cannot have a healthy relationship with God if we do not speak to God in prayer. We can't. At the end of the day, the leading cause of relational breakdown in marriage or in the home or in the workplace or in the church is breakdown in communication. The same goes here. The same The same happens here in our private individual relationship with God and our public collective relationship with God as a church together. Prayer sits at the heart of this. And it is through prayer where we meet God, where we grow in intimacy with God, where we delight in God, in his word and in his gospel, 
So if we want to grow in our relationship with God, well, then we need to grow in our prayer life together, our corporate prayer life. And we need to seek ways to pray more together. We should be seeking ways to pray more together, to open our hearts to God together. The Puritan John Bunyan said that prayer is the opener of the heart of God and the means by which the soul, though empty, is filled. By prayer, the Christian can open his heart to God as to a friend and obtain fresh testimony of God's friendship with him. May God's heart be open to us and our heart publicly open to him through prayer in all of our life together, from our corporate worship gatherings, like we're in now, to our men's, women's, young adults, and care group gatherings. May God's heart be open to us and our heart be open to him. Well, second, we see here the scope of our prayers together. Did you notice that word? comes up three times in just these four verses. The word all. The spirit that the hand of Paul is making it abundantly clear that we are to pray not for some people, but for all people. If we remember from chapter one, false teachers had risen up within the church and they were teaching a narrow understanding of salvation through the law and not Christ. And this teaching inevitably led to a narrow prayer life. And so here Paul is countering this by arguing that the church should pray for all people, including, verse 2, kings and any who are in authority, parents, bosses, law enforcement, government leaders, locally, nationally, internationally. We are to pray for all people, all authorities, And we are to pray evangelistically. This, brothers and sisters, is why we pray publicly in our pastoral prayer every Sunday, no matter who's in office, for the president, for the vice president, for government leaders. This is why we pray for other countries, as well as their government leadership, week after week. We are seeking to be faithful to God's word by faithfully praying for the authorities in our lives each week. And when we as pastors publicly pray here at EBC, we pray on behalf of the whole. It's not just us praying up here. We are praying together in that pastoral prayer. That prayer is for the church. It's for our church. Well, at the the time that Paul was writing this, Nero was king. He was emperor. Christians were being persecuted and killed for their faith in Jesus. And here Paul is encouraging the church to pray for that same leadership that persecuted them. See, Paul understood that it is impossible to hate someone if you are praying for them. Isn't that true? It is impossible to hate someone if you're regularly praying for them. We are to bless those who curse us. Paul is encouraging that here. Paul is encouraging this kind of faithful Christianity so that the church can lead a peaceful and quiet life. We are to humbly pray for our government so that we may live a humble life, a quiet life, a peaceful life together as a church. So let's continue to pray together as Paul encourages us here. For this is 
as it says in verse 3, good and pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires, verse 4, all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Here, Paul picks up the words through the prophet Ezekiel, from Ezekiel 33:11, where God says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. See, God desires all to be saved. Now, this text has been used by many in church history to argue for universalism, salvation, and heaven for all, whether they go through Christ or not. But this view is not compatible with the testimony of God's Word, especially Paul's pastoral letters. The same Paul who wrote these words to Timothy also wrote in Ephesians 1 that God shows us all who repent and believe in Christ before the foundations of the world, and that in love God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of whose will? His will. Paul is not at odds with Paul. He is not speaking out of both sides of his mouth here. God predestines and elects and desires all to be saved. So let's not boil this down to foolish debate. Let's glory in the salvation that God has made available to all people everywhere. In light of that salvation, let's pray that salvation that can only come through Christ alone. Let's pray for the salvation of our family and our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, government leaders, and let's do it evangelistically, that they would come to know Jesus as the only way, truth, and life. Step one in our evangelism is prayer. Step one in seeking the salvation of souls around us, is prayer to God, who is the author of salvation. Do you believe that? Yes. Well, in the light of God's word, let's pray for one another. Pray through the prayer directory. If you don't have one, you can find one in the foyer after the service. Pick two people in the prayer directory this week and pray for them. Pray for their children if they have kids. Pray for their lives. Pray that they would be a witness to Christ in whatever context of life that they're in. Let's also pray through that prayer email that that Kristen sends out faithfully on Mondays, which is just a recap of the pastoral prayer. And let's also pray privately and publicly for the world, for their salvation. Not, Not for our glory, but for God's glory. The greatest evangelistic outreach ministry of this church is our corporate prayer life. I'm going to say that again. The greatest evangelistic outreach ministry of this church is our corporate prayer life together. So let's seek more ways to pray with and for one another to the glory of God. Well, a flourishing church prioritizes prayer. And the flourishing church also prioritizes the payment. So point two, priority of the payment, verses five through seven. Look there with me. 
For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Here in these verses, Paul is connecting the priority of prayer to the priority of the payment, which is the center point of this chapter. Well, this year, 2023, the global debt reached $300 trillion. Oh, think about that. That's a staggering number. It's an amazing number. I'm not a financial analyst. I'm a pastor. But the process of paying a debt like that down, it's like unfathomable. Narrowing it to America, each household has an average debt load of over $150,000. That's also amazing. Amazing. But there is a debt that is far greater. And that is our spiritual debt. The spiritual debt of our sin against God that has earned us death. See, the different doctrine, the counterfeit gospel that was floating through the church at Ephesus said that if you abide by the law, then you can pay off that debt over time before God. False teachers were attempting to pay the debt of sin with the counterfeit monopoly money of obedience to the law. So Paul doubles down here, and he combats this and says, verses 5 and 6, no, there is only one God. There is only one mediator. A mediator being a stand-in, a go-between between God and men. That there is only one substitute, one man who has paid the ransom payment for sin. This concept of ransom goes all the way back to the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. In Leviticus 16, we read of a, a day of atonement. On that day, the priest would spiritually lay the sins of all the people, the debt of all the people upon a scapegoat, and then send that scapegoat out into the wilderness. This was a picture of the sins of the people disappearing with that scapegoat. On that day, the priest, who was a mediator, before God's people, and the scapegoat, which is a ransom, a payment for God's people, came together to offer atonement for the sins of God's people. And all of this pointed forward, all of it pointed forward to a better scapegoat and a better mediator, and Paul is speaking of him here. And what's his name, church? Jesus. Jesus. Jesus came, as Matthew 20, 28 says, not to be served, but to serve by laying his life down as a ransom for many. He laid his life down on the cross. See, in the beginning, God created all things, and they were created good. But the first human beings, Adam and Eve, disobeyed God. They rebelled against him, and they incurred a massive debt, the debt of sin. They denied God's good and gracious authority, and sin entered the world. And it's not just Adam and Eve or God's people in the Old Testament that have incurred this debt. We know from all Scripture that all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone in this room is a sinner in need of our debt being wiped away. 
Everyone in this room will one day die physically. And because of our sin, the final destiny of unbelieving sinners is eternal judgment in a place called hell. But God, being gracious and merciful, so loved the world that he sent his only son, the God-man, who is the only mediator between God and man. And he came to live and die on a cross. On the cross, Jesus took the debt, every last bit of it, as a substitutionary atonement in our place. He stood underneath the debt that we could never afford. He took the punishment for your sin and mine upon the cross, upon himself. Three days later, he got up from the dead. He was resurrected, securing the payment in his blood once and for all. And he later ascended to heaven, and he reigns now. And he will one day return. That is the good news. Oh, praise the one who paid our debt and raised our lives up from the dead. The debt has been paid for all who believe. The debt has been wiped clean for all who are in Jesus. All who believe in this gospel hold the promise of eternal life. And that's a promise. And if you are here and you're not a Christian, then there's only one response to this good news. One. And that is repentance, turning from your sin, and turning toward Christ in faith. Repentance and faith are the only means, only means. Repentance and faith in Christ alone are the only means for your salvation. No other payment will suffice. Nothing. Your good works, nothing. I can't pay off that debt. Your spirituality can't pay off that debt. Your niceness, can't pay off that debt. Only one person can, and that's Jesus. If you have questions about this, I'll be standing in the back after the service, or you can come and find another pastor here, Pastor Jeff, or one of the other elders. We would love to talk with you more. But Christian, why, why does all this matter? Why, why does this payment matter? Well, it matters greatly in our day-to-day life. First, as Christians, because of this truth, we can live under the freedom of Christ because our sin, our sins have been paid for by his blood. And so when shame and guilt plague your mind, when, when things flood your mind from past or present, they creep into your heart, they creep into your mind, we can look to Christ who is the ransom for our faith with assurance that he paid it all, all to him I owe. That is a daily process, a daily gospel process for you, Christian. Second, as Christians, we can forgive those who have sinned against us. We can remove the debt because our debt has been removed in the blood of Jesus. Well, in verse 7, we read that Paul was appointed as a preacher and apostle of this good news, the testimony of this gospel of pure grace. And Pastor Timothy and every faithful pastor in church has been appointed to proclaim the same testimony 
of this gospel. Today, here in America, 350,000 churches will gather for worship. Think about that for a moment. And a great number of preachers will stand behind a pulpit like this and proclaim a salvation from the law, a salvation of the law, just like these false teachers were doing in the church of Ephesus. They'll proclaim a false gospel of political rhetoric or lifeless moralism or a prosperity gospel of heaven now for five easy payments. But this is not what the church is appointed to preach. This is not what the Apostle Paul or Timothy was appointed to preach. No, the church is to preach a better truth, a better salvation, a better payment, a better gospel. And that's the gospel of Jesus. He is our message, brothers and sisters, and he alone. And we will, with the Lord's help, continue to proclaim that truth, his truth, until Christ returns. Oh, brothers and sisters, in Christ, God is building a spiritually debt-free household made up of Christians globally who have professed this gospel, who have been baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and have committed to Christ locally in churches like ours and are awaiting his return. Well, until that day and into eternity, the church will remain God's people. It will remain his house. And he has designed his house for worship. Through prayers, we've seen through the proclamation of the ransom, proclamation of the gospel that we just heard. But he's also given the church, who is his house, purposeful or intentional, steadfast, male and female roles for our good, for our joy, for our flourishing. And that brings us to point three, the priority of purposeful roles. Verses 8 through 15. Let me read those. I desire then that in every place that men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. But the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. If we remember from, from last week, the primary purpose of this letter is put forward in chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. You don't have to turn there. You can write that down again if you'd like. It's where Paul declares that the local church is God's house, that is a pillar of truth that confesses the mystery of godliness, which is the person and work of Jesus himself. It's the core purpose of 1 Timothy. And so connecting that purpose to what's happening here... Before we walk through these verses, I want to make two overarching points. Just two. First, along with God's house comes God's rules and God's purposeful design for how his people ought to behave and thrive. These verses uh, can, can, can come as a shock to us. 
But the spirit of the hand of Paul is making it abundantly clear that God has good design for men and women in the church. And we ought to honor that design. Second, this passage has become one of the most controversial passages in the Bible as of late. It has been scrutinized viciously since the 60s here in the West. Before then, if if we did a cursory look at church history, this text wasn't nearly as scrutinized or really questioned. And so men and women and their roles in the church coming under scrutiny is really a more modern reality. We should keep that in mind as we walk through these verses. The last overarching point is I am the son of a woman. I am the grandson of a woman. I am the husband of a woman. I father two daughters, and I am a pastor to women here in this church. I am and have been surrounded by strong, godly, wonderful women all my life. So as a man and as a pastor, I don't approach this text, or really any text for that matter, with indifference or laziness or fear or half-heartedness. I love this text in part because I love the women in my life. I love that women have been given to the church, and I desire for the women around me to flourish. So what is the Spirit saying in these these verses to the church? What do we do and have to learn from, from God here in this passage according to his house and about his design. Well, by God's design, verse 8, men should in every place, in the home or in the church, be leading in prayer. When it comes to the role of men, Paul doesn't start with protection. He doesn't start with provision. He starts with prayer. As the bumper sticker says, real men pray. We should consider that real masculinity is rooted in the gentle, lowly, praying heart of Jesus, not in the raging and crude heart of men. And so, men, we are to humbly and spiritually lead in prayer, in the home, and in the church. Let's be hearers and doers of this truth. Now, Paul writes to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 11, of women praying in corporate worship. And so, Paul is not prohibiting women here from praying in corporate worship. We need to to be clear on that. Paul isn't limiting prayer to just men here. No, he's encouraging men to lead in prayer in holiness and humility, lifting holy hands to God in prayer and not lifting hands toward one another in anger and warfare. Brothers and sisters, this verse is speaking less about the posture of our, of our arms and speaking more about the posture of our heart. Spirit then moves to speak to women in verses 9 through 10. We read that women are to adorn themselves with modesty, self-control, godliness, and good works, not with hairstyles, jewelry, and clothes. In the Ephesian context, women were either objectified in Roman culture, they were seen as less than, chattel, in Jewish culture, or, according to history, idolized and elevated within temple culture. 
Further, in the church context of Ephesus, the false teachers were forbidding marriage. They were, they were forbidding a primary role of many women in the congregation. We read of this in chapter 4, verse 3. And this all caused confusion for the role of women in that day. And we really struggle with a lot of the same confusions, confusion and issues today in the world and in the church. So the record is being set straight here. Godly women are not primarily known by the way that they look, by, by, by the way that they live. Not by the way they look, but by the way they live. A Christian woman does not seek immodest attention of men inside and outside the church, like some Ephesian women were seeking to look more like Rome or the priestesses in the temple of Diana at the center of town. But instead, they were to seek a deeper life with and in Christ, their Savior. Similar to verse 8, these verses are speaking less about outer beauty and more about the inner beauty that comes from the Spirit, the posture of the heart that is pleasing to God and is adorned in grace. Paul goes on in verses 11 through 12 to speak about the roles of men and women in corporate worship. In verse 11, Paul says that women should learn quietly with all submissiveness. We need to catch the radical thing that Paul is saying here. Paul is radically encouraging women to learn. He is radically encouraging women to educate themselves in sound doctrine in a peaceful and non-disruptive way. That's, that's the point here. This was and is in many contexts countercultural. And though submissiveness is a four-letter word today in our culture, Paul isn't being sexist or chauvinistic here. He's encouraging women to listen and learn in corporate worship, to not be passive but active in this. He further qualifies this in verses 12 through 15. The overarching point here is that because of God's good design in the created order revealed in Genesis 1 and 2, women should not have, though, an authoritative teaching role over men in corporate worship. Pulling insight and instruction from this verse, from the context of 1 Timothy, from the, the context of the New Testament, and other faithful men and pastors before me, here are, here are some points on, on these verses. I have six for you today. Six points. First, this prohibition is for the church in all cultures, in all centuries. This isn't just for the church then. This is for the church now. This is made clearer as Paul grounds this instruction in the created order of Genesis 1 and 2, which is permanent, foundational, and good. Second, women are not being completely prohibited here from teaching in the church. Women should teach in the church and engage in corporate worship. The Spirit is prohibiting women to hold authority by teaching men in mixed male-female corporate worship settings. But Paul is clear that women should deeply study and learn the word, as he just said. And women should teach as well. Paul says this in Titus chapter 2, a passage well worth reading on women teaching women, encouraging women, discipling women in the life of the church. 
We are for this here at EBC, which is why we encourage women's ministry. We encourage women's Simeon Trust and host conferences like Learn It, Give It that equip women to learn and teach and disciple in the life of the church. Third, uh, we read these verses in connection with the qualifications of chapter 3. We're going to look at this some weeks from now, more, more intently, chapter 3. Um, but here, Paul's making it clear that the role of pastor is for biblically qualified men of sound character, conviction, and competency. We're going to see that in chapter 3. But this is made clear here. He's kind of laying the foundation for that. We can read also of this in, in Titus 1 and 1 Peter 5 on the role of a pastor, being specifically for men who are called to a ministry of word and prayer and to shepherding in the life of the church, particularly in corporate gatherings. Fifth, God created men and women, male and females, with equal dignity, honor, and glory. Men and women are created equal, but different but different. This is where, and what is called, complementarianism is helpful. That's the view that we hold here at EBC. Men and women are created equal, but with differing and complementary roles in the life of the home and life of the church, particularly here. This is revealed in the beginning in Genesis. As one pastor points out, God made heaven and earth, sun and moon, land and sea, male and female, Two genders, two roles that complement one another, but have different functions. Paul's words here shape the way that we understand God's design and roles in church life. Sixth, though these words are heavily challenged in today's culture, and even in some churches and denominations today, this does not change the truth that God's design for a flourishing church is clear and good here in 1 Timothy, especially when it comes to biblical womanhood and manhood and roles, pastoral roles in the church. Well, again, Paul goes on to ground all of this in the created order, the unchanging order of creation in verses 13 and 14. He says that Adam was formed first before Eve. Because of this, men ought to lead and hold the authoritative teaching role of pastor in the church according to God's purposeful design and order. Paul goes on to show that when that order is turned upside down, as it was by Eve, when she was deceived by Satan and led Adam astray, things go wrong. That's Paul's, Paul's point here. Now, Paul's not saying that women are more likely to be deceived than men. He's not, he's not saying that. Ultimately, Paul is saying that the order and events of the fall show us what happens when men are passive and women take the lead authoritative role, particularly in teaching, in home life and church life. All of this applies to our life together here at EBC, but bringing it further down to the, to the pavement of our life together, men, the church needs men who are not passive, but eager to lead and to shepherd, not with chauvinism or with macho masculinity, as we so often see in the rise and fall of men and church leaders in the church, 
but are willing to lead men who are willing to lead with grace and truth. Men who are willing to exercise authority in prayer and teaching boldly under God's word. And who are willing to lead with biblical conviction, joy, and care. Women. The church needs women who are eager to learn the word rightly and apply that learning in the home and in the church. To teach and encourage women well with the word. To be women who are willing to submit to faithful pastoral care, to faithful leadership in the church, not seeking to be subversive or disruptive, but seeking to live lives adorned by grace. This is what the church needs, men and women. This is what the church needs here at EBC because this is God's good design for the church laid out here. These are the purposeful roles that we can trace from beginning to the end of Scripture that bring life and vitality to the church. Well, Paul goes on to say, verse 15, let me read that verse. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. A ton of ink has been spilt. A lot of ink has been spilt on the previous verses, but this one in particular. Is Paul saying that women will literally be saved through marriage and childbirth here? Well, certainly not. Certainly not. As he will, he will write on widows later in the, in the letter. And Paul, like Jesus, was single. He knows that there are singles in the church and women who, for whatever reason, cannot have children. He knows this. Paul is not being insensitive here. He's making a twofold point. Connecting this to the Genesis story right after the fall, what happens in Genesis 3? God speaks and assures the woman, Eve, in Genesis 3.15, that she will bear a son, a seed, that will crush the serpent's head and bring salvation to the world. Through childbearing, salvation would come. As Galatians 4, verses 4 through 5 states, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. Here, Paul is assuring the church that salvation has come through Eve, later through Mary, in the birth of Jesus. But there's another, another side of this. Men can't have children. Men can't have children. Women alone have children. The women alone can bear children. Again, men and women are created equal, but different. So keeping in step with what the Spirit has said in this section, Paul is assuring the church that women can and will flourish, not by having authoritative teaching roles in the church over men, but by being fruitful and multiplying, raising children if if God's will is that for them, raising children for the glory of God and living a flourishing life of faith and love and holiness and self-control in the home and in the church. The Spirit is not prohibiting women from working here, 
nor is he saying that single women or women who cannot have children are less than. But he is saying that a central way that Christian women flourish, if she can bear children, is by fulfilling the purposeful role of mother and evangelist to her children. And so, moms of EBC, moms of EBC, whether your children are in the home or half in the home, half out, or fully out, persevere, sisters. Persevere. Persevere and pursue a godly life of faith and love and holiness and self-control. Continue to, in love, share the salvation story of Jesus with your children, no matter what age they are. J.C. Ryle said that as long as there are the prayers of a praying mother, there is hope. So moms of EBC, I encourage you to pray and to continue to share the message of salvation with your kids. Give them Jesus and none other. Well, we should close. We should close. In an age of distraction, prayer is a holy means of communion with God. And it is the seedbed of evangelism, as we've seen in this text. So let's prioritize corporate prayer and seek the salvation of our family and our friends and neighbors through it. Also, in an evangelical climate of legalism and moralism, let's continue to remain transfixed on Jesus, proclaiming the payment of his substitutionary death for sinners like us in the gospel. And lastly, in a world that seeks to androgenize the roles, flatline the roles of men and women inside and outside the church, with the Lord's help, let's resolve to uphold the beautiful and purposeful complementary roles in a flourishing church. May we not be swayed by the spirit of the age, and make shipwreck of our faith, individually or collectively. But instead, let's abide by the guiding light that is sufficient, which is God's word, his gospel. And by grace, let's remain on course for our joy and for God's glory. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for the gifts of prayer, the gift of the gospel, the gift of your word that speaks life to the dead. We praise you and we thank you and we rejoice in all of this. And we ask that you would give us what we have not, that you would teach us what we know not, and that you would make us what we are not for our joy, and for your glory. And it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.